Joe Manganiello stars in the new film Arch Enemy as Max Fist, a homeless alcoholic who may also be a superhero from the planet Chromium in another dimension. Of course, it goes viral thanks to a media outfit called Trendable. Manganiello, a producer of the film, is one of our guests today, along with Adam Egypt Mortimer, the writer and director behind this very different take on the superhero genre. Arch Enemy also includes some inspired animated sequences from what may or may not be Max's superhero past, and a cast of terrific actors including Glenn Howerton, Amy Simons, and Paul Shear, as you haven't seen them before. It's backed by Legion M, the fan-focused entertainment company we profiled last episode. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker, and Arch Enemy is now available on VOD and in select theaters because of, you know. Here's Adam Egypt Mortimer and Joe Manganiello talking about Arch Enemy. Congratulations on Arch Enemy. I have a million questions. I'm going to start with kind of a stupid one. Adam, how did you get the middle name Egypt? It's derived from my great-grandmother, Rose, who lived in Egypt until, uh, until the Jews were kicked out of Egypt in 1954. And then I, they went, then I think they went to Syria. Um, but in the family records, she was referred to as Egyptian Rose. Huh. And so that became hmm. a, uh, a, a, a nod to my family at lineage. And it, it, it also happens that I, you know, was, have been obsessed with Egypt and Egyptian mythology and sort of the, uh, Egypt as the birthplace of, um, of magic and the connection between language and uh, making reality, forming it into what you want. I think that Egyptians were the first filmmakers. How much do you want to talk about this? <laughs> a little bit. It's interesting. Um, the, yeah, I read a while that Tarot actually started in Egypt too. So just everything goes back to Egypt. Mm. Cool name. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Joe, I wanted to start by thanking you because you wrote a book a while ago. Um, and there's a line in it that I think about all the time and I actually thought about at Gelson's a couple of days ago. Uh, alcohol is the destroyer. Um, it was about fitness and about health, but one of the points you make in it is how unhelpful alcohol is in terms of fitness, and it's something that uh, I have thought about a lot as a as a former drinker. So thank you. Well, congrats. How long have you not been drinking? Uh, eight years. Oh, congrats, man. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So 2012. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I feel like that kind of ties into this movie. I felt like there was a way to read it as kind of a kind of a movie about addiction. Yeah, very much. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot to do about, you know, for example, like why an alcoholic would drink yeah. or, or what's that all about? Or, you know, oh, he went through some trauma and now he became an alcoholic. And, you know, there's a big argument that, you know, alcoholics are born that way or they just um, have some sort, they're wired in a certain way or, or they have this ailment and the perfect chemical medication for them is the alcohol like that actually solves all their problems mm -hmm. um but this was a case where um you know and and this is interesting because i think a lot of people this week have said you know are there other adventures for max and have you and adam talked about other adventures it seems like the door's open to explore all these other different timelines and dimensions and and you know, a lot, uh, there was a question that I asked myself during this process was, you know, which is kind of hinted on it 
in the end, and I'm not giving too much away, but you know, there's this talk about what a hero is. And I think we're so conditioned by our superheroes um, or the stories of superheroes, the traditional stories of superheroes that the powers are handed to people who can, who can be responsible with that power. Superman was raised with this great parental structure in Kansas. You know, these adopted parents who were just the sweetest, you know, most good natured people that taught him right and taught him American values. Yeah. And um, what if power was handed to someone who wasn't? So the question is, you know, was Max an alcoholic or the equivalent on chromium? Was he someone that had those types of issues, those unresolved issues that he was always going to wrestle with? Or was it potentially landing on the wrong planet or punching his way through space and time to a planet that where his body hurt so badly that he needed some form of medication in order to deal with the pain of having to breathe the toxic atmosphere you know, the smoggy atmosphere from having gravity hurt his bones or the sun's radiation hurt him. Um, so, you know, you know, which one is it, you know, uh, nature and nurture. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a, you know, there's interesting imagery where, you know, some of the times we see you drinking the most or taking the most hardcore drugs, taking the meth are also times where, uh, you're the longing the most for the most cosmic powers, right? You snort meth and then you start punching a wall saying, I can, I have this cosmic vision I can see in between space and time. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting connection, you know, to, to, to the points you're making about how, well, if you had these powers and that gave you certain feelings and you don't have them anymore, you're chasing the feelings. You're chasing the feelings of superpowers or being a, a superhero more than chasing the, um, like you say, the responsibility of it, right? Which is the thing increasingly you're, you're forced to do is take responsibility and do an action. But what you really seem to be missing for the f- entire first half of the movie is feeling like a guy that could fly, feeling like a guy that can stay through space and time, which a lot, you know, when you talk to anybody who's a heroin addict and they'll say, well, for that, you know, for the amount of time that I'm on that drug, I feel like a god. And that's maybe, you know, a, a weird thing that we all want is to feel like something that's beyond what we actually are. And it can lead to real problems. That's right. And, and I think <clears throat> along those lines, you know, it's the idea of like, you know, unforgiven, where you feel sick, you feel washed up over the hill, um, past your prime but you're gonna gird yourself up for one last blaze of glory. And so you have, to, you have to go down into that basement and open that cage and, and let that animal out. And the key to that for Max, obviously is, is you know, as you find out in the film, is, is methamphetamine. Um, but, but he has to be willing to go back to that place in order to do what he knows he's about to do. Uh, And that also, you know, I tried to build into the character a a real physical arc where it was noticeable, where you could actually see with your eyes his body change back, you know, and and, uh, because of the the drug use. Yeah. There's an interesting 
thing going on too, where we all kind of do choose what dimension we live in, where you can take drugs and kind of enter another dimension, but is that a real dimension or is it all in your head? And one thing I really mm -hmm. like about Max Fist is you don't know through this entire movie if he actually is a superhero in this other dimension or if it's completely in his mind and you play it very straight throughout. And I think even at the end of the movie, people could theoretically debate it. I have a strong opinion, um, but I really, I'm not gonna ruin it. And I really like how you guys handled it. it. It's really just a compelling way to keep us engaged. So the idea for this, where did this originate? Uh, I started thinking about it in 2015, which was, was just after I'd made my first movie, which was a super tiny film. And, um, and one thing that influenced me just on a production side was some of my friends were involved with Bone Tomahawk. Mm -hmm. which was an incredibly mm -hmm. low-budget movie that created an entire Western landscape and deconstructed the idea of what a Western hero is and was super violent, and they shot it for nothing. You know, and I saw how they made that movie. It was a cinematographer I'd worked with. It was producers I'd worked with. Um, and so I was like, I bet I could do that with superheroes. And I bet that now, and this was five years ago, but it was true then and even more true now, uh, now in superhero movies, I was thinking we can treat movie-going audiences with the same sophistication that comic books have been treating comic book readers mm -hmm. for 40 or 50 years, <clears throat> where yeah. all the way back in the 80s, they understood superheroes is not a genre. It's not a genre. It doesn't have to feel a certain way. It's a mythology. And the genre can be gritty realism or psychedelic insanity or love story. And the aesthetics, the aesthetics can be anything from Chris Ware to Bill Sienkiewicz to, you know, uh, I, I don't know what's uh, uh, pouch guy who's the guy with all the pouches. <laughs> well, um, I, I love the part of Sinkevich, and I read another interview where you mentioned Elector Assassin, um, mm -hmm. and I got strong Frank Miller vibes. Um, of course, he wrote Electro Assassin, Bill Sinkevich, whose name I didn't know how to pronounce until just now, so thank you. Um, <laughs> I the, might be wrong, but let's agree to agree. Well, he did the amazing art on it, and you really do kind of tap into their world. Um, and it's exactly as you're saying, you can treat comic books as respectfully, you can treat a comic book movie as respectfully as comic books have been treating us. I mean, I read Electro Assassin when I was like 10 and it blew my mind. Yeah, it's like, they, we are, we're like, we, under, we all understand what superheroes are. So let's uh, immediately start from the end or the middle of the story and play around with it and, and figure out what kind of genre it can be. And since Joe <laughs> is such a huge comic book fan also, this was like, from the very first conversation, we were kind of in sync on understanding the way that we're approaching it as a movie, how that relates to comics. Well, and I can't tell you how many times over the years I've worked with a, a writer or a writer-director who has dumbed down their own writing because it, it, you know, and the excuse was, <clears throat> listen, you don't understand these studio people. They want it this way. Yeah. And they've kind of gone against their own personal gut instinct and storytelling instinct in order to like, like censor their own writing or their own creativity in order to try to figure out what, you know, the, 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 the people with the money uh, wanted, the business people wanted. <laughs> and um, what I loved about the script and what I loved about Adam's vision primarily was the fact that he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> I mean, it, it meant that we, you know, we were going to be operating off of a 
significantly smaller budget <laughs> than than you know a, a studio film. But but what it meant was that the vision wasn't going to be compromised, and we were going to be able to tell the story that we wanted. And honestly, that's all I've ever wanted as an artist. That's all I've ever wanted as a creative is the opportunity to tell a story that you know was of a solid singular creative vision um, that didn't have to kowtow to uh, to any other outside influence and that's what we got to do here um, like Adam said with with the the superhero mythology you almost started off in a super I mean you did start off in spider-man mm -hmm. I read that you auditioned to play spider-man and ended up getting flash Thompson we all did, yeah. All the, all, the, all, the, all the young men in the film, we all auditioned in with Peter Parker and then were wound up in our respective parts. And then you were very, you were almost Deathstroke in the, in the Ben Affleck Batman movie. You know, I, I did show up as Deathstroke in the Justice League film in the end credit sequence that was meant to tease the film we were going to shoot nine months later, which was... Ben Affleck's Batman. Yeah. What was it like to have that incredibly huge prominent opportunity and then have that movie sort of disappear? Did it make you more determined to do your own stamp on superheroes? It broke my heart. Um, and it wasn't the first time. <laughs> and I've had horrible, horrible, debilitating heartbreaks <laughs> uh, <laughs> In, in my 20 years bouncing around town, um, but that was probably the worst. Um, yeah, I didn't, you know, I was, it hurt for a while and then, I, but I had done so much work already in preparation for that film that I found out we weren't going to shoot. Um, whether that was, you know, katana training at a ninjutsu school, qigong, kung fu, um, I went out and started knocking the rust off with a lot of my Navy SEAL and Dev Brew friends. Um, sort of get, getting back in the head, getting in the headspace of the character, figuring out who this guy was. And because of all of that work, um, I picked myself up off the ground uh, and uh, off the mat. And I wrote a treatment, a 16-page treatment for a Deathstroke origin film that, um, that the studio was very excited about. And, um, and then, uh, you know, Oscar nominated writer worked with me on this treatment and, uh, eventually it led to a two hour long Skype call with, uh, Gareth Evans, uh, who nice. was, who wanted to find, wanted to do a studio film for the first time ever and wanted to make the Deathstroke movie. So, um, you know, you just move to the next right thing. I mean, then, you know, uh, everyone left the studio <laughs> For whatever reason you want to you want to tag onto it after Justice League, and that project was canceled, which mm. was once again heartbreaking. And then there were about five other projects that, like, I was put on hold for and had a date for, and we were ready to go for involving Deathstroke that then got canceled. So um, it, it's a tough business, man. So when when this script came across my desk, when Arch Enemy came across my desk, yes. Uh, I was, I was fired up. And uh, I think a lot of that angst and, and energy uh, and even disappointment went into my passion for this project and um, making this thing happen. Yeah. And we, we, I think, you know, we got to channel all of that into the character and, you know, those yeah. same 
kinds of feelings of, of, you know, heartbreak and disappointment went into the, the writing. I mean, that's what this character is. This is a character who, you know, came close, uh, but fell further than he had risen. And, and then how do you recover from that? You know, do you spend your life moping and drinking or do you go out and punch some shit? And that, you know, it's like as an aspiring filmmaker, it, every day of my life, you know, feels like Max Fist, where you sort of imagine yourself, I'm going to be an amazing filmmaker. And then people pass on your projects and you realize, oh my God, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, no one will ever know that I was an amazing filmmaker. And, you know, especially when I first started writing this and I hadn't even made Daniels real yet, it was that feeling of constantly, you know, your mind does to you what Max Fist's story is. And so I, I think Joe, Joe and I were able to sort of bond over these kinds of disappointments and these kinds of tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did this shot in LA, right? This wasn't a really good imitation of LA? No, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was mostly downtown LA, Van Nuys, Castaic, Echo Park. Is it me or did the trendable, is the trendable office located almost exactly where the old BuzzFeed office was? Oh, I don't, I don't know where their office, I hope it was, because it was supposed to feel like that, but I don't actually know where their office was. It's right by the Arclight, or it was by the Arclight? Oh, no, we, we shot, that was downtown, that was like grimy downtown meat, meat truck. But, but in the middle of downtown, there's this like amazing oasis, which is this, that building, which was owned by... Elijah Wood, like he used to live there, yeah. where we shot that. Yeah, the interior. The exterior yeah, the interior. was elsewhere. The interior is Elijah's, a building Elijah owns, uh, which is so nice. Hey, producer, can we please use your amazing loft space for our movie? And he was like, yeah. cool, yeah. How much is the location fee? And we were like, zero dollars. I'm so sorry, dude, but we're trying to make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to talk about the funding for the movie. I talked to the guys from Legion M a couple of days ago, the founders, um, Jeff and Paul, and I'm wondering what it was like working with Legion M. I mean, obviously you guys are trying to start your own IP that could take off and could spin off into a lot of other things. That's one of their goals. Legion M also aspires to give fans a voice in a production. I'm wondering, was that helpful or does that, is that ever a problem? I mean, to have fans have kind of, kind of a voice in what the project is going to be. I mean, what, what, what it amounted to for us was every day we would say like, oh my God, we need a cool car. We can't afford a cool car. And like this amazing guy, Matt specifically would drive up in his El Camino and be like, I would love for Max Fist to drive my cool El Camino. And like, you know, it was, it, it was stuff like that. It's, it's this sort of like massive group of people who are um, interested in and invested in your success and it's like, and it, and it gives you, for, for us anyway, it felt like when I was first making my very first like $3,000 music videos or my $10 short films, and I would just call every friend I could find to be like, do you have a camera? Do you have a fake severed head? It was kind of like that, but with like hundreds of thousands of people that we could reach out to and kind of incorporate into helping us build the world that way. Well, in, in Legion M, I mean, so that's how, for me, that's how this whole journey started. You know, I, I wound up meeting David Baxter in a celebrity Dungeons and Dragons game that was on camera, like a streaming game. He was sitting next to me and he knew that I had the streetwear line death saves. And I was wearing like a jacket or t-shirt. He goes, that thing is awesome, man. Would you ever want to make, you know, merch for a movie? And I said, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, what's the movie? He said, well, 
you know, Legion M and I, we produced this film along with SpectraVision called Mandy. And I was like, wait a second, you're, you're, you're part of that crazy Nick Cage movie I heard about from Sundance. Do you want to send me a link? And he sent me a link that night. And I called him back and like, I'm obsessed with this movie. I, I need it. Like, of course, I'll do anything you want. And that's how I met director Panos. That's how I met SpectraVision and Lisa Whalen and Daniel Noah and, and Elijah. And, uh, and then, you know, through meeting them, uh, Lisa then slipped me the script to Archenemy and said, you know, what do you think about this? Yeah. And it was interesting because, you know, like you talk about taking your angst or your disappointments and putting them into something. When I read the script, it was, you know, I didn't get to play Superman. And yeah. so for me to read the script, it's like, oh, wait, this could be, this could be my way into that character only you know, more tragic and, and there's really, you know, so much meat on the bone acting wise here. Um, so uh, that's actually how that all started. And then I was in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And I remember, you know, at the premiere, I ran into David Baxter of Legion M and he said, wait, I heard through the grapevine, are you doing Arch Enemy? And I said, yeah. He said, oh my God, I read that script months ago. Like we've been watching it, waiting to see who they cast. If you're gonna do it, we're coming in. And so. You know, the next day, Legion M, you know, called SpectraVision and, and came on to the project. And, and so they've, they've just been such a great, you know, um, um, such a great, such great allies, I think, because they just, they really care about genre and they really want to see, um, they have this great fan base that, um, you know, it's like, as soon as they come on board, it's like, you've got a core audience. Yeah you know, who wants to see you succeed. And, and there's something really cool about, you know, having that type of support creatively. And they're, and they're looking at this world, you know, that we, like, I think the movie is like, it's a pinprick into this like universe, you know, and Legion M are the ones being like, well, let's make like uh, all the, how do we build out the world and how do we make all this like gear that ties into the most tiny weird mm -hmm. aspects of it? You know, I have this crazy cat that was like a five second shot in the movie. They're making t-shirts of that thing, you know? And like, they're, they're, uh, they're creating, we're having a screening party for the movie on Sunday where they're working with Alamo Drafthouse to make like an eight bit world and you can wander, you know, they're just like, they're, they're doing the kinds of things you dream about when you're 12 years old and you're like, when I make movies, like everything, we are going to make t-shirts and games and it's going to be amazing. And then the reality is you can't do that because some distributor owns all the rights and they don't give a shit. Right. But with Legion M, they're, they're, they're in it for that reason. And it's, it's incredible to have like this team of people who want to do things as big as, as if it was a studio movie, mm -hmm. but it's an insane movie, but they still want to make all this world around it. Yeah. Um, I know we're low on time, so I just want to ask one last big thing that may be impossible to answer. What do you think is going to happen to movies in the next few years? I mean, are big productions going to be replaced by smaller productions and more nimble productions like this one? I, I think so, yeah. Uh, well, okay, so I think everything's moving to streaming. Um, I think the business model... Uh, you know, for hundred, like, you know, to make a hundred million dollar movie, the business model is you need first and second weekend box office to justify that. You just do. And I think we're moving into a, a period now um, where, where by necessity, we have to start rethinking things. Now, with that said, I think a film like Arch Enemy 
I mean, makes even more sense today than it did a year ago when we were shooting it. I think in today's climate, that's how you have to do it. You have to be creative and you have to pivot. And I think, um, you know, it, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to pull off what we pull off, pulled off. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It, it is, it is tough. Every point you're moving at the production is moving at the speed of light. There's, there's <clears throat> very little margin for error, but, um, you know, I think it's, you know, we were fortunate because, you know, Adam's a director who could pivot, you know, in the way that, like, I watched Steven Soderbergh pivot from day to day on the Magic Mike movies. Like, Adam has that in him where it's, you know, he's making lemonade out of lemons. And everything that goes wrong is seen as an opportunity to do something even better than what we had. And I think that was certainly the case. And if you have nimble filmmakers who are intelligent and understand the process, you know, that way or at that level, then, um, then you can do what we did. Um, and I think that's probably the way that film has to go, or at least the two hour or 90 minute to 120 minute, you know, uh, medium. I, 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 think, I think it has to go that way. Because everything you- else, the, the big stuff's gonna move to, to streaming. It, well, yeah, I think maybe if we had been making this project in 2023 instead of 2019, we might have done it as a, a fairly low budget but eight hour, you know, streaming miniseries and like really gotten into all the nuances of, of the world in a way that that's in there and sort of set it up for that format. But hopefully, as that keeps being a thing, it's like people will make those things in a cinematic way. I think the thing that was really important to us on arch enemy was like the sound is big the colors are vibrant like it's some it's it's more about the immersive world and being in the mind of the characters than it is on like story 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 and so hopefully as things move to streaming the, uh we continue to like elevate them in in a cinematic way you know what i mean not mm-hmm. instead of modeling streaming after tv shows from 15 years ago model them after awesome movies but stretch them out and have more time to be absorbed into the world and more uh, risks to take cinematically thank you so much for listening arch enemy is out now if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast perhaps throw us a few stars on apple we love them We'd love to see you at moviemaker.com. We invite you to subscribe to Movie Maker Magazine. You can give us a holler at Movie Maker Mag on all the social channels. And if you have any feedback, feel free to email me at tim.mowly at moviemaker.com or my co-host Eric at moviemaker.com. See you soon. <laughs>